Welcome to Design Meets Business, a show that inspires designers to think beyond pixels. I'm your host, Christian Vasile, and on this podcast, I sit down with creatives to talk about their stories, lessons they've learned during their careers, and how you can use design to make a bigger impact in your organization. Today, we're talking to Cassius Chiani, a fascinating product designer, entrepreneur, and former lecturer at the Imperial College of London and MIT. In the next hour, you'll hear us talk about why it's important to learn how to learn, the challenges of moving into leadership, and why asking questions is key to solving problems. Cassius, thanks a lot for joining Design Meets Business. Your uh, background in design is very diverse. You got to work with a wealth of companies that everyone has heard about, whether that's Bumble or GoDaddy or Facebook. And you also got to lead products in the field that are, that are a bit more ambiguous, let's say, like blockchain and emerging technologies. So we'll talk about what all of those different experiences taught you as a designer. But before that, let's go a bit into your background and how you started out in design. And if you remember, what's the moment that made you want to become a designer? Um, Yeah, so that's a rather interesting question. So I've always been interested in technology in general, and I spent a great deal of my time as a teenager and young adult exploring and experimenting with social media and that could be things such as just creating MySpace themes and hacking around other bits and pieces. And I wouldn't necessarily call that design, but it was, let's say, my first soiree into using design tools. Um, And then from there, I I suppose my path is unconventional because I didn't realise that there was product functions within businesses until I ended up working at a startup. And I originally worked at a startup within marketing specifically. And from there... I then saw different aspects of the product function and realized that some of these skills that I'd spent my time learning as a teenager and hacking around with were actually useful. And from there, I started to essentially do the same thing that I think a lot of people do when they realize that something is interesting and they start to talk to more people about it, learn more, find find out more about it. And from there, I met some very talented individuals who, let's say, acted as my mentors. And then from there, managed to scale that into a profession and through the consistent practice of doing good work, managed to, let's say, move forward from there. So it's not a very romantic story as much as it's quite a pragmatic, practical one. So what were some of these skills that you're mentioning? Because I, I can relate a bit to that. I started by coding for fun when I was very young, and then suddenly that turned into design. So what, was coding one of them, or what were some of these other skills? Yeah, so I definitely I definitely think that programming is something you have exposure to um, at a younger age than you would say design, simply because the idea of um, making websites and apps is, comes up a lot. People don't tend to understand that the difference between design and development is the same as architecture and construction, right? There's there's two, there's a fine line. And um, so you, I ex- explored programming. I did a lot with WordPress and hacking around with other bits and pieces. However, I definitely would have considered myself much more of a, I think they call them growth hackers in the space, someone who could take different aspects of marketing and couple that with development. Now, I wouldn't necessarily say my development skills were rather strong, um, but they were good enough, right? So I, I, I suppose that the skills I realized I could apply into design were things such as critical thinking and what people obviously define now as user experience, the idea of how can you help people accomplish their goals or solve their problems through um, a product specifically, because you realize quite quickly that or at least I realized that those two things are separate in terms of what what people 
think about as development in a standard sense so I realized that actually I enjoyed that side of things much more and then I managed to find labels from that I mean when I first started doing this this would have been around 10 years ago so the industry itself was especially if you're a young person and you grew up in in the UK uh, was something which was a little bit more mysterious user experience existed yeah UI UX was talked about so it was product however it was by no means an absolute um, standard function within businesses, unless you were venture backed or um, you were a booming internet business at the time. You're right. Uh, I remember 10 years ago, you were, it was not even product designer, you were a web designer, right? So the industry is, is evolving just as a role, if you want, um, is evolving. And with the industry evolving, I guess we as designers need to evolve as well. So throughout your last 10 years, let's use that as an example. What were some of the things where you can look back and say, that's what allowed me to get to the point where right now I can build teams and I worked at all these successful companies. What's the thing that made you successful in your career that you've managed to develop throughout time? Absolutely. So this is this is um, a rather interesting topic for me because I have a, quite a strong opinion on this. So I believe that the majority of leaders in the world are great synthesizers, which means they're able to find threads between people, business and technology, and they're able to pull on them. And typically to do that, you have to be what some people would call a polymath. So you have to be someone who is capable of learning and exploring a number of different areas and understanding how those areas start to fit together. And from there, be able to synthesize thoughts based on what you've learned. And so for me, uh, I'd say that my unfair advantage is I spent a great deal of time learning how to learn. Um, I, I surrounded myself with experts within the field. And I, at the, for, from there at the same time, what I did a lot of was attempt to find my own thoughts and opinions on things because it's rather easy to read a textbook it's rather easy to listen to what someone says and to say okay that makes sense however that isn't necessarily synthesis i wanted to understand a little bit more about perhaps why things were the way they are and how i could then apply that into um like i said these three different fields of people business and technology and so th synthesis i'd say is has been the thing that has been uh, my unfair advantage and i'd say that any leader in the field or any leader within um, almost any company is rather good at synthesis. I love this topic of learning how to learn because I think there's, um, especially in education today, there's an emphasis on, on learning. Here are Here's the curriculum. Here are the things you need to learn. And by the end of school, you need to you know, pass a test to show that you've learned those things. But we're not really talking in education, whether that's design education or any other type of education, we're not really talking about what you mentioned earlier, which is learning how to learn. Did that come natural to you or have you picked it up from somewhere? How did you find this concept or how did you start thinking even about learning how to learn? For me, what happened was I stumbled across an interesting set of people known as um, mnemonists. So people who could uh, memorize obscenely long pieces of information. So let's say 150 words in five minutes or um, a thousand digits in a short space of time. And for me, I found that quite fascinating because I wouldn't necessarily say I have a good memory by any stretch. And so I was curious to learn more about what these what these people could do and how they how they learned to put together these structures in their minds, which allowed them to then absorb copious amounts of information and to do something with them. And so I actually um, spent a great deal of time being taught by a previous grandmaster of memory who I sought out and asked for some support. And he showed me all of the techniques, tricks and tips. And from there, I started to ask myself questions around, well, 
what makes these things work? Why do they work? How does the mind work in, in relation to these techniques? Why are they so effective and so sticky? And you quickly realize that actually this whole process of learning consists of three big blocks where you have encoding, consolidation, and retrieval. And the memory side of things is the retrieval side. And encoding and consolidation is stuff that we, we interact with a lot on a daily basis through education and everything else. The only downside is that most of that is heavily focused on rote learning and the idea of being able to absorb facts by simply repeating them and expressing them over and over again rather than understanding them and from there i started to dive into the topic and learn more about what is mastery and and you know reading a lot of the literature around that and at the same time attempting to apply that as much as possible to some of the things i've learned so i'd say that yeah how did i learn how to learn well ultimately i became curious to know how some people can accomplish so much with their time and why I was accomplishing so little comparatively. And from there, I, I, I think I'm, I'm always like everyone else, I was looking for a magic pill. And then when I realized there, was, there wasn't one, the closest thing I could find was, um, let's say the equivalent of a protein shake for the mind. Right. So let's stay on the topic of education and, and learning. You are self-taught, right? You haven't gone to design school. If you would have to start all over again today, would you go the same route again? Or would you actually try to get some education? What's your opinion on that? So I'd say that design education is, is fundamentally broken. And I'd say it's fundamentally broken because it still relies on a huge amount of tacit knowledge in order to get things across. So when I say tacit knowledge, what we can view is we can view, if we view an iceberg, explicit knowledge is the tip of the iceberg and what sits above the surface of the water. And tacit knowledge is everything which sits below the surface. So that's the stuff that we learn from doing, which is rather hard to explain and rather difficult to bring to the surface. Now, it's difficult, it's not impossible. When we look at fields such as law, medicine, or other scientific fields, what people have done really well is they found a way to take all of this tacit knowledge and to bring it to the surface and make it explicit, which means we can have a conversation about it and it makes sense. If we look at neuroscience, for example, we no longer need to talk in high levels of abstraction around what um, neurons do and how they interact with each other in terms of, let's say, um, neuronal circuits in the mind, right? We can now have conversations around that and start to understand things. We haven't done that yet with design. Design education is fundamentally still an incredibly tacit process, which means that you have to have experience, you have to be out into the real world, and you have to interact with these things to get to understand a little bit more about, again, the people, business and technology of things and to make it work. Now, I don't necessarily believe that that's how it has to be forever. However, no one has really spent the time to bring all of these tacit um, pieces, of, these tacit subject matters to the surface. They're not explicit yet. And so if I was to go back in time, I would 100% continue on the path that I continued now, simply because I've met and interacted with people who have had a, let's say, firm design education. And unfortunately, the curriculum or the system simply hasn't found the way to take all of that tacit knowledge that you learn and bring it to the surface, not even in a way which I believe is useful from a fundamental starting point. I can relate to that. Uh, just to segue a bit into a story, I, I do actually have a design education, but as I mentioned in one of the previous podcasts, I haven't really used it for anything because it was so slow in teaching you what it had to teach you that you could learn it outside of school and get a client, a potential client, where you could apply that knowledge. So actually, I was always a bit ahead of the, the school curriculum, if you want. So for me, it was more of a checkbox exercise, if you want. But so, so because I can relate to that, I fully agree with you that probably because education, design education is broken today, it might not make sense to follow it. But I'm wondering, are there any cases in which actually it would be beneficial to you as someone starting out 
to go to school to get that knowledge that you're talking about, even if the system is broken. So my, my perception here is that when people look at design, they tend to mix design too closely with, with art. And ultimately, they also seem to mix design very closely with execution. Now, design is ultimately a number of things. It's a process, which means it can be used for strategy or execution. It does not have to be a simply production, a production skill set. Now, when we talk about design education, unless you're looking at schools which have identified these problems for a long period of time and have done their best to overcome these things. So you have schools such as perhaps Parsons or perhaps Glasgow School of Art, where they have very specific courses where they've identified that actually design is a little bit more than simply, and I say little bit, I mean a lot more than simply the case of learning how to use tools and being a, let's say, a, a pixel pusher or a production monkey. So when it comes to design, I find that it depends on your goals because there definitely are schools which will teach you to produce well. Um, now, I, in my opinion, production is not a long-term skill and it's not a long-term skill which has any longevity simply for the fact that we have to be quite honest and quite frank here and the majority of us are going to get old, we're going to have families and we're going to, at, at the end of the day, end up in a situation where keeping up with the Joneses is far too complex. I realised that at a very young age when I was messing around with PHP and Java and JavaScript and then all of these new frameworks coming out. And I have friends who are incredibly deep in development who also suffer from the same, let's say, learning fatigue of having to keep up with all of the modern trends. Now, you can add huge amounts of value by being someone who can steer the ship rather than being the per the person that builds the ship. And I feel that for a lot of people, if you wanted to if you want to do something which is heavily production based when you're younger, by all means, go for it. Um, and I think you you rather enjoy it. However, I do feel there comes a time where the majority of designers should consider how much time they want to spend as let's say as, as someone who does pure production versus moving into someone who can move into leadership and management. And I think that that's a natural transition for a lot of people. There are some absolute superstars who can um, let's say go against the grain and be incredible with production late into their 50s, 60s, 70s. And that's fine. However, that's by no means the majority, it's the minority, it's the you know, top 1% of producers in the world, let's say. So moving into leadership and steering the ship, as you've called it, also comes with some other challenges that producing the work long-term doesn't necessarily have. You know, you have to suddenly deal with people, you have to you know, manage people down, you have to manage people up. And, and, and every single time you have to deal with people because we are so complex, there are a lot of challenges there. So what are some of these challenges of moving into leadership that you have experienced throughout climbing the career ladder? Absolutely. The, the two biggest challenges I think most people will face and the ones I certainly faced were the illusion of transparency, which is believing that what you say is what people hear. And that's an incredibly hard thing to learn and to understand because you may have a crystallized idea in your head and an image your job is to attempt to implant that into someone else's and that is to understand how to do that is it's an art as well as a science and it takes a long time to learn how to use words to first of all take what's inside your head and allow someone else to see and understand that and then at the same time to clarify whether everyone is aligned and on the same page. So some people call that communication um, and I would agree. However, the problem with communication is that we then assume that everything we say is transparent. It's not. People have different, different experiences. They come from different backgrounds and they are likely to interpret what you say differently to the way that you want it interpreted. So um, it, creating alignment through communication and let's say bypassing the illusion of transparency is one thing. And then the other side of things I say is listening. Um, leadership is not about telling people what to do by any stretch. 
it's about simply making good decisions and making good decisions requires data and information. Now, you may have lots of data and information and you may already know what you want to do and what to say. However, if you are working with someone or you are leading someone or managing someone, the first thing that you should ask is what do they think should be done next? Because quite frankly, most of the time, if you ask someone, okay, so from here, what do you think we should do? Regardless of whether or not you know what to do, that person one, it's a useful learning 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 curve for them to attempt to let's say piece together parts of the puzzle and um, to then understand where to move forward, which is a good way of creating another leader. I mean, that's one successful criteria of leadership. Good leaders create other good leaders, and then the second side of that is, can you then understand um, either what you haven't seen or perhaps where you fall short? Because more often than not, you'd be surprised when you say, well, actually, I think we should go in this direction, but you give someone else the platform to speak and they'll say something and you realize, wow, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it like that. So maybe we should do that. And so I find that if I had to summarize those two things, you know, move past the illusion of transparency, understand that people are complicated and they do not always hear what you are saying as what you want it to be interpreted as. And on the other side, spend more time listening and asking people what they think you should do and make a decision with that rather than simply being the person who dictates absolutely everything. I think that relates really well to what I see the role of a designer and design leader be, which is more of a connector. In a, in a business, you're the connector between, you know, maybe the engineering department and the people who are in sales and marketing and everyone else. But also from the business perspective, you're the connector between that business and its customers. So I see communication as or being good at communication, listening obviously is part of that uh, as a, an absolutely fundamental part of being a good design leader. And I, I've heard this quote once, which which I think goes like this, communication is not what you say, communication is what people understand through the words you're saying, which is basically what you've said. So uh, when you when you keep this this thing in mind, and when you go into a company where as a design leader, you don't only need to manage down your design team, but you need to do a lot of managing to the left and to the right and even up. Would those same skills apply or there's something else you need here as well? Are there other challenges? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of challenges. And so one of the things that people need to become accustomed to, and I feel that people have a lot of resistance to, especially young designers and designers in general. So if we had to look at this from a perspective of personality psychology, we can say that most people who become designers would be rather high in trait openness, which means that we're rather accepting of a lot of things. We're open-minded and we're interested in exploring things, which means we tend not to like boundaries or hierarchies. Now, the irony here is that everything in the world, including including your mind and nature, is constructed in a hierarchy. And when you hear the word deep, deep is a millennial word for hierarchy. If we say deep learning, it just means you know, hierarchical learning. So what we have to begin, then begin to understand is that all self-organizing systems eventually organize themselves in hierarchies. And they do that for a myriad of reasons. The reasons are usually the evil of the hierarchy, right? Competence is not a reason to be at war for a self-organizing system. Competence is great because then people get good results. Now, if something self-organizes in a way where, let's say, it's negative hierarchy based on something arbitrary like looks, right, there's a problem because that has no competence, no value. It's not useful for anyone. So when we're looking at, let's say, a company and we're looking at maybe a startup or we're looking at um, a, a team that's growing from 10 to 100 people. 
you move from a very flat structure because that's fine. There's enough nodes in the system, let's say 10 people, that you can share information in a very light, transparent way and it's not overwhelming. Now, if you're in the middle of that system, let's say, and it grows from 10 to 100, and now you know you have you're responsible for the information that flows downwards as well as the information that flows upwards, well, now you become one of these, these nodes in the network that has to do some level of filtering. So what you have to realize is that when things start to self-organize into hierarchies, the number one reason for that is to, let's say, constrain the flow of information. And constraining the flow of information is really important because if you are overwhelmed by everything that's going on constantly, you can't get anything done. And a really simple example of this is to just simply look at the way the brain works. About 99% of our um, processing is unconscious, which means we don't really know it's happening. Our conscious cognition is 1% of all of our total cognition. And that's simply because if we had to attempt to attend to everything that was going on at the same time, it would be absolutely bloody overwhelming. And it's the same with an organization, which means if you're communicating up or down, what you really have to understand is what information has to go where and why. Now, there are certain things that I'm completely, uh, let's say, all for in terms of transparency. By all means, let's talk about salaries. Let's talk about what's going on. Let's talk about runway, everything else. No problem. Now, is it important for let's say management to hear about all of the troubles that happened on the ground if these troubles on the ground are trivial and resolved no is it important for them if these things look like they could bubble over and let's say damage the system in the long term yes and equally it works both ways so when you're in working with a company you have to understand that ultimately if you're a leader and there's someone above you and there's someone below you you have to manage that flow of information and you simply need to understand what information is relevant where when and why or how to take all of the information that you've been given and condense it in a way that is useful to that part of the system. And that's quite tricky. And I feel that that's something that people who move into, let's say, a leadership position in design tend to struggle with, is the idea of one, understanding that um, the, systems, the systems form hierarchies for a reason, and two, to understand that actually, the hierarchy is simply to control the flow of information and to ultimately control competence. Now, if you understand those two things, the world is a lot less mysterious and you know, mystifying. If, if you become comfortable with that, then you can safely say, well, provided I become more competent and I understand how to transmit information in different directions, then I will probably get, get some social mobility and some upward mobility. That, that's fantastic. So I'd say that that's the biggest challenge for people moving into leadership is to attempt to understand how hierarchies work and at the same time to understand simply the flow of information. Informa information theory is really useful here. However, that's that's overkill. I mean, the simple answer is uh, know what to say and when to say it. And that, I assume, or maybe this is the question, that comes with experience or do you think that's something that someone can teach someone else? I think you can teach it. Um, I would say that it may feel quite tacit to someone who's been in that position. And again, if you spend a great deal of time learning through experience and you're quite pragmatic, it can be quite difficult to pull some of these rules to the surface. However, there certainly are rules where you can say to people, if you do these things, then you're, you're likely to be more successful and you can make it rule-based. And um, what I would say is, and here's the, the chaotic modifier, if you will, is people are different. And so there are certain people who sit within different positions of these organizations that have different um, personality types, have different dispositions, and they may want different things from you. And learning to interact as uh, you know, different, different nodes on the network is quite tricky. So if you are someone who is relatively trusting and the person up top is, let's say, very skeptical, you have to learn what information they need to hear in order to um, allow you to move forward in the way that you want to move forward, especially if you know, let's say, you have enough indicators that the team that you're working with or leading 
is moving in the right direction. Someone who wants data is not going to be convinced by simply, okay, well, these anecdotes make everything okay. So to some extent, that's that that's the modifier. I'd say that if I had to pull out two, very, two quick rules, which may be useful here, then I'd say understand who you're talking to and then understand what they need to hear. And if you can get a sense of that, and that unfortunately takes a little bit of time, um, then usually you're, you're in a good situation. So it sounds like transitioning from being a designer on the ground, doing the hard work, to a design leader position, that's a, a, a bit of a different type of hard work, takes a lot of experience, a lot of skills, a lot of things that are built over time. But I'm wondering, you as a design leader have probably worked and helped other people become design leaders or at least get closer to it throughout your career. Are there any patterns there? Have, are there any traits that you know, if a designer has this trait, they're much more likely to become a good design leader? Or is it down to training and experience? I don't think it's down to training at all or experience. I think that there's a, uh, there's a number of people who are incredible leaders at the age of 13 and 15, and they do not necessarily need to spend 10, 15 years climbing, um, let's say, a corporate hierarchy or even a design hierarchy to get there. I've met plenty of people who are serial founders and have exited three companies by the time they're 25, and they are incredible leaders. And what I tend to find with these people is that the traits that they're that they show would show that they're good leaders that they can one listen and two they can understand where information needs to be channeled more than anything else most good leaders are incredibly good at simply finding people to listen to and listening to them and from there making decisions it really is a, a, a game of becoming better and better and better at making decisions and understanding where when when and where you have enough information to make a good to make a good judgment call on something now the more complicated the industry, the more complicated the subject, the harder it is to gain some of that knowledge. If you're in biotech, for example, there's a lot of rules and regulations that will dictate how quickly you can move comparatively to if you're in a SaaS company. And let's say, what is a good and bad move? And even in SaaS, then you have things like fintech, you have um, different types of legal tech as well. And they have different, different hurdles to comparative creating dev tools. So I don't think that you need 10 to 15 years experience. And one of the things that I come across when I speak to a lot of young designers is they say, I don't have enough experience yet. I think that's garbage. I feel that, um, quite frankly, if you wanted to become a design leader, you could do it in six to 12 months, provided you work on the soft skills required to position yourself in a way where one, you learn how to listen and two, you, make how, you learn how to make good decisions more than anything else. And I think that everything else after that is perhaps superfluous. Now, maybe you could argue that actually, you know, to make good decisions, you need higher IQ. And if you have higher IQ, it becomes easier. However, there's plenty of people with high IQ that make bad decisions as well. So it simply is a case of understanding the frame that you're working within and the dots that you can join within that frame and to say, okay, well, this is a good enough decision right now. And here's how we'll measure, uh, measure success going forward. So wouldn't you say, or I at least would think that in order to be able to make good decisions, you need to have a bit of experience in that frame that you're working in. So how could someone coming in, as you said, six, 12 months, even if that person at a, at a people level is a great leader, how can that person make good decisions considering that person doesn't necessarily understand all the complexities of that frame they're working in? You don't necessarily need to understand all of the complexities as much as you simply need to understand why. What you find quite quickly is that if you ask someone something and they give you an answer and you say, okay, and why would that work? Or why is that the way it is? 
and someone can't let's say move down one more level of the hierarchy i mean usually the the the, the trouble the troubling thing that we have here is that if you ask someone three whys then they get stuck incredibly quickly now there are certain professions where people do not get stuck at three whys doctors um, neuroscientists and um, psychologists eventually things typically if you ask them why enough times they can still give you a rough answer what you tend to find is that if someone understands what they're talking about or the reason why something should be done then as you question it and you attempt to pull the argument apart it becomes incredibly difficult to do so and then you can start to wait okay well actually if this person can give me a coherent explanation of this over and over again and i then have the opinions of five people and all of those exp explanations seem coherent and they're all roughly in line well the question is okay now i'm going to ask everyone if we, what would what would happen if we were wrong what would we do if we were wrong right and typically you then get some more interesting information i mean ultimately to become a good leader you simply need to i mean you don't need to know everything about an industry as much as you simply need to understand how to weight opinions and how to weight information in a way that allows you to say okay well actually i don't know anything about um let's say uh, human biology however You've all produced convincing arguments. We've now weighed all of that up. Some are, some are for, some are against. The, these ideas have collided and clashed. We've now identified what the worst case scenario is. We've identified what the best case is. I think we do this. Um, you know, Can we all agree and commit? It's like, sometimes I'll say, no, we can't all agree. It's like, fine, well, can we all disagree and commit? Yeah, sure, fine, but let's commit. Um, it really is just a case of simply being able to pull out the right, pull, pull out information. Sometimes that's simply a game of asking the right questions. However, if you start with why, um, most of the time you'll be able to get past someone's, let's say, fake explanation. And a fake explanation is incredibly dangerous um, because if someone gives you a fake explanation, well, suddenly you'll, you realize that you know there's a problem. And this is a big thing of design, right? I mean, if I start to talk to, if someone asks me a question around, um, let's say, what size should fonts be in, in uh, across, let's say, um, hero images, etc. It's like, I don't know. So there is no right answer, really. It's like you, you can't make good judgment calls on stuff like that. I mean, eventually you'll get to something which is which is useful. But as a leader, you don't necessarily need to know all of these things because they're superfluous. Most of the stuff that we feel as designers are useful for leaders or not. I mean, I don't care how big the font is on the homepage. I don't care what font you use. I equally don't care the colors or anything else. Provided it sells and provided what we're doing is putting something together that, that markets correctly to our target audience. I don't care if it looks like Airbnb or LinkedIn. It really does not bother me anymore. Um, it mattered a lot more to me when I was younger because that would essentially show how competent I was, how pretty I could make something. But in the future, that no longer matters. So, yeah, I, I suppose if I was to summarize that, that rather large train of thought, it would simply be a case of... Um, if you can wait decisions and you can ask why and you can ask the right questions, then suddenly you realize you don't need to know much about anything. You simply need to be the person that can make the right calls. I want to talk about that transition from a few years ago to today. But before that, you wrote an article which relates to what we just discussed uh, called Thinking Like an Experienced Designer. And in that article, you talk about how thinking like a designer basically means asking questions. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so the fundamental difference between art and design is that design must solve a problem. Art does not need to solve a problem. Art can simply be uh, visually pleasing and appealing. Now, how would you turn art into design? Well, let's say you create art, which then helps people with depression or helps calm um, un unruly animals. Well, suddenly that's a design problem, right? It's suddenly you've created a solution for something. So when we're looking at what design is really it's the case of solving problems and really to solve problems you have to be able to understand what the problems are it's really easy 
to um, take a top-down approach and to say I'm prescribing solutions to a market rather than understanding the problems. And I'm not necessarily saying that you should take a purely bottom-up approach either of saying, well, actually, all of the market says it wants this, let's give it to them. Because quite frankly, people can't see what they can't see and people don't know what they want until you show them to some extent anyway. So it's finding that balance between top-down top down opinions on things and let's say um, bo bottom-up support from the people who you want to serve anyway. However, in order to do that, you have to ask questions. And so when I've worked with... Uh, my own companies, entrepreneurs that have um, a track record of success, what I tend to find that when things go really well is if they have an idea, they first say, well, I wonder what problem this solves. And once they have that, they then go and see, well, I wonder actually if people have this problem, people that aren't simply me. When a lot of people say, uh, the reason my company has succeeded is because I built it for myself. Well, in that case, perhaps after doing a little bit of re research, you realize you were not an anomaly anymore. You realize that the problems you have, everyone shares and they face and they experience as well. Um, and design really is that process of being able to understand what problems exist, why do they exist? And then to understand a little bit more about will they exist in the future, e.g. if no one solves this, will there still be a problem tomorrow? Um, and do I need to be build a tool to solve this? Or do I need to simply change the way that someone behaves and their habits? Because those are two different things as well. GitHub, for example, is much more of a behavioral change for people than it is an actual useful tool in the sense of what it does. I mean, it does a, a, a fantastic number of things. However, Git on a fundamental level does all of those things. It simply doesn't allow people to interact within a, with a system and change their behavior. And you'd say something such as Asana or Trello is 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 um, a good example of this because, quite frankly, anyone can pick up some post-it notes and stick them to a wall. However, that's not necessarily collaborative and it doesn't change behavior. So there are some things which we can say will exist forever. I used to, when I was younger, think, well, you know, I can't start businesses because all the good ideas are taken. Well turns out that if you want to do something exciting most of the time you can simply ask questions around the clothes people wear the food people eat and um, how people get from a to b how people collaborate there's always a business idea somewhere as long as you can find the problems so i guess when i talk about um design and being a designer and the idea of answer of uh, asking questions it really comes from you know taking a, a problem solving approach to things and focusing much more on the problem than the solution and again, you know, we all get caught up in this. It's much easier to think about solutions rather than problems. Um, and if you can if you can strike that nice balance, this is why I don't like to label myself as a designer when everyone is really a designer. If you can ask the right questions, then technically you're, you're using design as a process to solve something uh, as a problem for real people. So that's how I tend to look at these things. If you'd start your career at that lower level where usually you feel and you, the role you take in companies is more of a pixel pusher. And then after a few years of having that experience and understanding what design is, you move a bit more into caring about the experience of the customers and we, we call that user experience. And then after a few more years, you move into the next level, which is, well, actually I need to care about the customers, but I also need to care about the business because without a business, there are no customers. So I know that transition happens over time, but what can you as a designer just starting out do to speed up that transition? I mean, this is what's really interesting to me is that most of the beliefs that people have about what they can or cannot do are self-limiting, they don't exist, right? If your dream is to start a startup and or your dream is to be a lead designer or a design leader, then do it, right? There really is nothing stopping you. The only thing that you have to ask yourself is, let's say that you right now you say, I want to be a thought leader in design. Okay, that's fine. What are you going to say or do that adds value to the industry? And if you can figure that out, well then go and do it. Now, 
along the way, you're going to learn anyway. If you say, I want to be a leader in interaction design, well, you're going to have to talk about and create things which are used by a lot of people in that process. And simply by doing that, you're going to learn more. I mean, depending on how much time, energy and effort you want to commit to this, you could in six months achieve what some people have achieved in six years. Um, and it really is that process of saying, look, if you want to fast track something, the honest answer is simply to, to go out there and do it. If you want to be the founder of a startup, the only thing that's holding you back is self-confidence. Because quite frankly, if you want to raise money, then what you do is you put together an idea and then you go and talk to some investors and the investors will hate it. And then you go and talk to the customers again and the customers will say, I don't know why the hell you put this together. This idea is rubbish. Uh, these are my problems. And then you'll say, okay. And then you put together another idea and you go back to the investors and the investors will hate it. And you do that a few times and suddenly, you realize, oh, wow, someone's willing to invest, let's say, a small seed into this, and I can get somewhere. You simply have to be comfortable with failure because it's the only way to learn. So my concern here is that most people take a really safe path into moving forward because they're worried about arbitrary limitations around, around failure or all of the things they need to learn. And nine out of 10 times, it comes back to this idea of information theory is you don't need to know that much. You simply need to know enough about the problems that you care about and the direction that you want to go in, and that's enough. And if you go out there, and you flounder around and fail, that's absolutely fine. Because if you are, to some extent, if you're able to listen to this, then you're in a privileged position in the world where failure is not going to be the, the be all and end all of your life right now. Um, it's a very different position if you're, you come from different backgrounds. But if you are part of, you know, the the 10% the of people in the world that can, can listen to this, it's like, well, count, you know, um, count your lucky stars that you could go out and fail and there would be, there would be no problem here. And most of the time, if you wanna keep your day job, uh, which is still very safe and spend 6 six p.m. to 12 p.m. every night working on wherever you want your future to go. Well, you can and that will happen. So I find that yeah, it's so arbitrary when someone says, what can I do to speed things up? It's like, do what you want to do or you do the things that you feel are going to be useful for you. And ironically, provided it's overwhelming, and this is my only criteria, if it's, if it's, if you're moving in the right direction, it should feel overwhelming. Nothing that's easy or nothing that, that makes your heart sing is really ever, oh, this is easy, etc. I mean, there's a reason that people talk about um, creative distress and things like that. It's because, you know, when you're putting your heart, yourself on the line, it hurts. And so to some extent, if you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed with where your life is going, well, then hopefully, provided you're putting, taking action, which is moving you in the right direction, and you'll be able to tell by giving yourself some arbitrary markers, right? I want to be a design leader in six months, right? What does that look like? Pick any arbitrary measure. I don't care if it's if it's followers on Instagram, Twitter, or anything else. Just pick something and measure it. Now, if you're measuring it and it's not going up, it's like, okay, well, now you know what to change. If there's no measurement, then it's a bit tricky because you don't know if you're just being unusually stupid or if you're actually moving in the positive direction, right? So... My, I, I suppose if I had to summarize this, it's the shortcut for anyone that wants to do anything is simply to go and do it. And, you know, quite frankly, I, I sat there idolizing the idea of, of running my own startup and raising money at a very young age. And I realized that actually the difference between the person who raised money um, and ran a startup was quite frankly, nothing other than I was willing to go and do it. The, the trending right now is the fact that the founder of Gymshark is a billionaire at, at 28. And what's the difference between uh, me, you and him? Well, it's simple. He started Gymshark. There really is no difference at the end of the day. I have two arms and two legs and so does he. Nice. So it's all about just go there and do it. I, I, I like that mantra. I, I think um, Gary Vaynerchuk talks about this a lot. He says, just start. That's his thing. 
when people come to him and ask, uh, how do I start a business? How do I do it? He says, just start, just start. And then you'll, as, as you go on that road, you're going to see, you know, there's a way to the left, there's a way to the right. And then that's kind of, kind of going to guide you. But if you don't start and you're, you're stagnant, how are you going to go? Which direction to go into next? So I, I love that. Want to talk a bit about, you've built a few product teams in your career and the things that you're looking for when building teams, the things that you're looking for when you're interviewing designers, when you look at their portfolios, when you, you, know, when you try to, to build a high-performing team, what are some of those? Most of it comes down to hard work and work ethic. Um, and ultimately, it comes down to someone's ability to realize that they can do more. Uh, I, I would say that I'm, I don't care necessarily too much for someone who has, it, depend, it depends on the project, right? So if I'm hiring freelancers, I need someone who can come in quickly and get things done. So in that case, I'll look at your portfolio and say, well, you have what I need right now. I don't need to nurture you. And equally, I don't see this as a long-term investment. I need you to come in, do your work, and you, you want to leave anyway. So that's a valuable exchange. We shake hands, everyone wins, done. Um, so if you're a freelancer, you really should simply be able to show some level of competence to the person that you're pitching to around what you want to do. So if you're a web designer or you are you, you are UI, UX designer, you're a product designer, a design strategist, you're a anything to do with, 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 with design, regardless of where you are in the value chain, provided you can show and convince someone else that you are capable of doing what you, what you do and that you are able to deliver and other people have can vouch for your delivery. And sometimes that's really as simple as putting some logos on a page, right? That's enough. Now, if you're building a design team and you plan to scale something, well, if you're hiring, hire, it depends how high you're hiring to some extent. Even then, if you're hiring for junior to mid, mid, mid-weight designers, 90% of the battle is, is their work ethic and how much they're willing to learn and improve and just take on feedback. Most of the time, if you have people that tick those boxes, then they're the right people. And I don't want to get into this weird aggressive work culture where people suggest that you should work, you know, 20 hours a day. However, if someone comes to me and they are slightly below what I what I believe they need to be and they work 20 hours a day, I sure as hell would give that person priority over someone who won't. And the fact is that you can technically, to some extent, outwork the competition at that level. It becomes a bit trickier later on in life. I mean, quite frankly, you know, I can't outwork Bill Gates because Bill Gates is much more efficient than I am. And he, does a, he has a myriad of things and a cumulative advantage that I do not have. So I can work 24 hours a day, I'd still lose. However, when you're starting out, that does work and it does work re- relatively well to a point. So for junior and midweight, work ethic is something that I would definitely hire for. And I think that 90% of design leaders will take work ethic and someone's ability to take on information and feedback on board as a positive indicator of joining a team. Now, as you move up and you start to move away from production, what I really care about is, are you going to listen to other people? Are you able to communicate? And if you're able to communicate, are you then able to make good decisions based on the information that you receive? And are you able to put out fires before they start? And are you able to identify some markers of performance going forwards that make it easy for you to do your job and easy for me to do my job? And if you can tick all of those boxes, then as far as I'm concerned, you're a good designer. Um, I would certainly say that a, a portfolio is important if you're earlier on in your career than later, because as, as you move later on into your career, people realize quite quickly that the way that you speak and the way you interact with the world is much more important. Whereas if you're junior to midway, you're going to have to prove to someone that you can create and commit. And nine out of 10 times, the portfolio is, is it's, it's an arbitrary checkbox exercise, right? It simply needs to show 
that you understand what design is. And if you can do so in a way that says you kind of understand the job you're applying for, because that's a problem in itself, and you know how to solve that, then I'm I'm fine with that. It doesn't need to be especially aesthetic. It doesn't need to be anything else. All of that can be tweaked and changed. Someone can say, you know, reduce the padding on these buttons, space this out there, don't use these colors, don't do that. It's arbitrary comparatively to someone who can, you know, work and learn in the process. I've always looked at portfolio, especially for more junior people as, or I've always said the portfolio is what actually has to get you through the door. It's the interview where you're actually making the impression. Because you're talking about hard work, for example. Hard work is difficult to show in a portfolio. How do I, how do I show in a portfolio that I'm working hard? However, if, if I'm in front of you at an interview and we tackle that topic, then that's, that's where I would bring that up. So with that in mind, how, do you, how would you split the two? If you would have to create a portfolio for a junior, what are the things you'd focus on? And then what are the things that you'd focus on in the interview process? So for a portfolio for a junior, I'd simply talk to someone about why you did what you did. Okay, so you decided to do this. Why? Okay, for this reason. Okay, um, what made you think that was a good idea? These things. Okay, and what were the results of doing this? So the if you're really junior, you may, you may have only created arbitrary projects for show, right? And that's fine. However, we live in a world where there's some no, no code tools right now. And there's a few things that you could do. And even honestly, if someone gave me a portfolio and they said, look, I put together this 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 trivial website and I wanted to sell sponges, but I didn't really want to you know build it. So what I did is I went to a market and I tried to sell, sell sponges using this messaging and everything else. I'd say, okay, that's interesting. So you're testing an MVP. What happened? What did you learn? How would you move forwards, right? Um, it's not clear cut. It really is a, a case of, can you show that you understand the process and that you will do, let's say 1% more than another candidate would. And that really is the, the the ceiling deal when you're hiring anyone and they're moving forwards is, can you show that you are willing to do that, that little bit extra? So in terms of a portfolio, how you'd show hard work is, are you, does it, how, how different is your portfolio in terms of what have you done that I haven't seen before that shows hard work? Or what have you done that shows you know some semblance about the job or me? And I'm not, I mean, this isn't too complicated. For example, you could scrape LinkedIn using Phantom Buster. You could use Zapier and Google Slides to then take all of those tokens and create, you know, take how you could have one template presentation. You could use Zapier to then take, you know, information from a CSV and update all of the name tokens within a presentation. You could send it to me and it could simply say, hey Cassius, I'm this designer applying for this position. And you could have already automated this whole goddamn process. I'll never know. However, that's enough that most other candidates wouldn't have done that and you have my attention and so I'm willing to have a conversation with you. Now, in the conversation, what do you have to prove? Well, typically, the conversation is, is a gauge of so how, how, how well does someone fit for a role based on their, their character? And it's really unfair. A conversation is a really unfair way to understand how well someone would do at a job because we're really biased. I mean, the human mind is subject to contamination from everything. And then when people say this stuff doesn't matter, it really does. The way someone looks, the way someone sounds, the way someone does X, Y, Z, it all matters. It all makes a difference. And simply because you are not conscious that you're making decisions based on these arbitrary factors, well, you kind of are. So someone does have to go out of the way to attempt to be their best self in an interview. And if you feel that you're not getting, and my honest answer here is if someone feels they're not getting a, an interview for a very specific reason, then that's probably true. And so you should ask yourself, how do I change this thing to stop it biasing someone else? Obviously, I don't want to get into a PC argument about X, Y, Z, but it's honestly, the problem here is that humans are really biased and they're subject to contamination. Now in that interview, 
if you want to show someone that you're good at, that you're willing to work hard and that there's a bar that you need to reach well you're going to have to tell me things that form an impression in my mind that you will do those things or you have done those things or there's some type of character reference that suggests you would now you might say i train as a martial artist i do crossfit uh, i spent the last six months learning how to use framer i did this i did this i did this oh at the weekends i take care of my sick parents i don't know but there's something somewhere that has to suggest that actually you are not like everyone else because you are willing to do these things. And that's interesting for me. And quite frankly, you know, it's depend if you're junior, I'll take a big risk because no one, you know, you're probably not, you're going to have to work hard. However, you're easily replaceable. And at the same time, um, to some extent as a junior, I, my expectation of you is lower than probably what I expect you to do anyway. I'm going to want you to reach for the stars, but I'm going to underestimate you slightly. And your job really is to is to impress me. Now, if you're midweight and the more senior you get, the more I over expect you to deliver. And so in those situations, it's a completely different paradigm. You know, saying that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to learn, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that's why being able to read a conversation and understand the flow of information is more important. So for junior and midweight, again, those are, those are probably those are some bits of advice I'd give specifically around the portfolio and the interview is show that you, you know, in the portfolio, do 1% more than someone else would. And then in, as far as the interview goes, simply give me indicators or give someone else indicators that if there's a bar, you're going to reach it and you're going to go beyond it. The reason I love the answer around the portfolio is because you're, um, it, it's a thesis that I really believe in, which is you can, there are some things you cannot control. So don't worry about those. There are some things you can control and that's where you want to focus your energy. And what you're talking about is, you know, as a junior, I can't control how much how many projects I get, or I can't control, you know, whether I'm self-taught or educated, but what I can control is the work I put in, in creating that portfolio or anything around it. So I really love that. And I think this is really useful and helpful advice for anyone who's sitting out there wondering, how do I get myself out there? How do I make people see me? And I think doing, as you said, 1% more than everyone else does is uh, probably the best way of doing so i really love that we uh we're running out of time i just got a couple more questions the questions that i ask everyone at the end of the show first one is what's the one thing you wish more designers would know that's a good question and if uh, uh, one thing is quite difficult because I'm going to paraphrase it as, as as one thing I wish that designers would know. And then one thing I think that the industry wishes that designers would know. And so the first thing I think that um, the industry wishes that designers would know is that the way things look is arbitrary. I care about how much revenue you can generate for this project because revenue gives my company energy and that energy I can use to then do, let's say, more good in the world. So provided that you believe you're working for a company that is generating wealth, which means that they're, let's say, taking money, using it as energy to create physical transformations in the world for the good, then that's fantastic, right? And that's what companies care about. How can you help me generate wealth? Now, what I think, um, or what I would really like more designers to know is how to learn. And I think that if people would simply understand the, let's say, process of um, encoding consolidation retrieval and they could simply repeat those loops over and over again they could do so efficiently well suddenly you realize the world is not such a scary place and you realize that actually you know if, if you're concerned about the threat of artificial intelligence or machine learning or anything else well 
design is fundamentally a process and a mindset and that can translate anywhere if you decide that you want to move away from design and move into finance or anything else it's like those processes would still apply they would they wouldn't disappear and um, you know there's a reason why most industries have product teams and there's a reason why design thinking and design let's say architecture and execution are becoming much more of a talking point especially design strategy actually while i'm on the topic so if you know how to learn well then suddenly you're very dangerous because you don't necessarily have to fear change and i feel that that's something that i wish most designers knew is that your job is as far as I'm concerned, you're in a privileged position because you can move and tra- you know, transform as you need to, provided you rely on the principles that you help other ca- you, you use for other companies to help transform, if you will. Are there any resources while we're on this topic of helping that can help people learn how to learn? Any books, any podcasts, anything that you've discovered out there? So I was I was originally taught by um, Mark Shannon, who is a grandmaster of memory, and. Um, he has a book which is um i can't pull it out if you put i'll link it to you so you can put it in the show notes but it's an incredibly simple um i think it's called the memory workbook or something and that comes with a series of really simple exercises where you can prime and engage yourself in how to learn and it's some of it's really really trivial as much as learning the phonetic alphabet or learning um you know what alpha brava charlie you know sierra blah 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 that kind of stuff but it allows you to understand the process of that over and over again. And all you have to do is then transform that process into things you actually care about and things that you want to learn. It makes a big difference. So that is, a, I think it's about $10 and that's a you know really bloody useful resource. And I think that if someone started with that and they persevere, because quite frankly, it's a new skill and the way that you've thought for the last you know 25 years or 30 years, it's going to be hard to overwrite. And so persevere with it, practice with it. There's a, there's a task in there a day. That's what originally... Um, helped me a lot improved my skills exponentially and then i just kept investing resources to improve from there so that's a very nice starting point okay we'll put that in the show notes so everyone can find it cassius last question for you how do you reckon the future of designers and industry looks like i feel that the future of designers and industry it's interesting because i don't know if design will be an industry anymore because one of the things that we have to bear in mind is that because design is a process and a mindset and a series of let's say a series of, of understanding how to solve problems it's a little like saying well is critical thinking in industry no it's a soft skill it's everywhere it's universally applied so product i believe will still exist i think that one of the things we'll start to realize quite quickly is that design will begin to let's say transition away from simply being an industry and if and unless of course we're relating to de- design in the most literal kind of sense of graphic design and everything else it's like that's relatively timeless you know however i feel that to look at something and say the design industry is well you know if we say design industry we're literally talking about producers we're not talking about design thinkers we're not talking about design strategists we're talking about producers so i really do feel that if the design industry still exists in 20 years it will exist in the same way that it's existed 20 years prior where we're talking about producers i think design thinking and design strategy and everything which surrounds that will be incredible incredibly commonplace because there's a really big movement um, in design education right now and the ability to democratize design as a process and companies are switching on to how useful that is and at the same time why they should use design as a strategy and uh, as a long-term a long-term investment in terms of people people's mindset and performance rather than simply an arbitrary production function awesome this was a learning experience a learning show for me is hopefully also for the for everyone listening where can people find out more about you where can they find you where can they get in touch with you 
I mean, they can, if you go to CassiusKiani.com, at some point that will link to more than my LinkedIn profile. I mean, it'll go to a website or something else because I have a few interesting projects in the work, in the work specifically around learning that I'd like to share with people. I've just finished doing a set of, um, you know, user interviews and I'm running a short beta test in the next, in the ne- in the coming weeks. So I'd suggest that if anyone wants to keep up with me, by all means, just go to CassiusKiani.com. And if it's LinkedIn, feel free to connect. And if it's anything else, then, um, you know, let's, let, let, let's see what the future holds. Cool. We're going to put all of these in the show notes so uh, people can uh, easily find you. Cassius, thank you so much for uh, being part of this Einwitz business. Really appreciate you. This has been very inspirational for me and again, hopefully for everyone else listening. Thank you so much one more time and I uh, hope we'll catch up soon. Privilege. Thank you very much. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Since you've made it this far, I hope you found this useful. And if you did, you should know there's much more content just like this on the way. So if you want to learn more about how designers can impact businesses, please consider subscribing and maybe sharing the episode with others. And before I say goodbye, remember that you can find show notes and links for this episode and others on our website, designmeetsbusiness.co. Catch you in the next one.